0: Today's message originated in the pulpit of Covenant Community Church by lead pastor Alan Ellis. Covenant Community Church lives to glorify Christ by making disciples who are growing in relationship with God in worship, then with the church in fellowship, and with the world in witness. Now, here's today's message.
1: Uh, Trinity Sunday is a especially a favorite Sunday of mine because on Trinity Sunday we are to look back uh, since the beginning of um the liturgical year began on Saint Andrew's Day, november thirtieth of last year. Advent, we celebrated the coming of Christ uh during Christmas and then in Lent Um, we celebrate or get ready for uh, Christ's passion. Easter time, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And then on Pentecost Sunday, we observe and celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit so that on Trinity Sunday, we look back to all of that from the beginning of the liturgical year and we celebrate the combined work of the Father-Son and Holy Spirit together, and I like how the colic. I don't. I don't know that. I guess there's enough in the colic for Trinity Sunday to make everybody unhappy. But to me, it's a good one uh, that we celebrate the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not as uh, three gods, but as uh, three persons, uh, separate and distinct persons who. Uh, share one essence or substance or being, so that in the doctrine of the Trinity we have uh, this uniquely Christian teaching that there is one God who makes himself known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when you reach Trinity Sunday, you know that you've gone through a good chunk of the liturgical calendar and that now we are into what in the Catholic Church is regarded as ordinary time. Uh, some churches call it the season or or the time after Pentecost. So since February 16th, we have been in the book of Job. And today uh, we take our leave of the book of Job. It was prior, uh, what, February 16th was our 51st. Sunday session on the life of David. Today will be, as we go back to uh, pick up the life of David, will be session number 52. So we've, after today, you can brag to your friends and associates that you spent a year in the life of David at church. There's probably not too many other Christians um, who can say that right now because Typically, they say if you 're going to preach on a series, it's got to be about four or five sessions long, and people get bored with it. Um, can I say this? Boredom is a characteristic of Covenant Community Church. Just deal with it, deal with it um, <clears throat> don't don't satisfy that itch to be constantly entertained uh, <clears throat> We're entertaining ourselves to death. We're going to be an interesting crowd in hell. Um, and if that's where you want to go, um, I hope that works out for you. Um, the wide path leads to destruction. The popular way uh, leads to hell for sure. And so, you know, there's, there's times in church it hasn't happened when I'm preaching yet, but I expected to, that I have to wake myself up. I have to kind of, um, like God speaking to Job out of a whirlwind, you know, get your big boy pants on. Now i got some questions to ask to you. Sometimes you have to um, wake yourself up, stir yourself up, and pay theological attention. That's going to be our by- byline. Covenant Community Church, where where God's people pay theological attention. That that should attract people, shouldn't it? Where boredom is, I don't know, on the menu for the day. Now with that refreshing introduction, sermon title today is The Pause That Refreshes. And if you're old like me, you'll recognize that as An advertising slogan from Coca-Cola that came into existence in the year 1929. Now, I wasn't alive in 1929, although I'm sure that it's rumored that I was. Um, But the pause that refreshes is where we'll pick up in the life of David, First Samuel, Second Samuel, excuse me, Chapter Seven. So, if you look with uh, me in your Bible, look uh, at that first verse of chapter seven, Second Samuel. We heard Jim uh, read it this morning. The first seventeen verses of chapter seven. Chapter seven is probably one of the most important chapters in the life of David because here we have what later is referred to as the davidic covenant. God makes a covenant agreement with David. And we've been reading the passage in Acts chapter 13 from Paul's sermon over and over and over all these 52 Sundays. And now it comes more clearly into focus when Paul says that it was from David's offspring that Jesus Christ was born. And that verse of scripture has a direct connection uh, with the verses in the seventh chapter of the book of 2 Samuel because David has a desire to build a house for God. And God says to David, wonderful thing, this desire that you have, but I want to build a house for you. And so Christianity can trace its roots back to this promise that God made to David, that God would establish David's throne forever, for eternity. And Christians believe that that eternal throne Uh, was established for David's son. Throughout the Gospels, we have people referring to Jesus as the son of David. Blind Bartimaeus, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. So that Christianity is not something that was created by Agreement of the Apostles, uh, Christianity was something that actually goes back at least to this chapter and we believe goes back to the first three chapters of the book of Genesis where Satan will bruise your heel but the promised one who is coming will, as Christy would say, smash your cheesy head. So look at this, this first verse then of chapter 7. If you uh, want some, I'll try to give you some context where we're at in case you can't remember all the way back to February 16th, our last session on the life of David. But David has just established himself as the king over a unified Israel. The reign of Saul and his family has been finally put behind him, he's built himself, he's conquered the city of Jerusalem, delivered it from its inhabitants, its former inhabitants, he's built himself a home there, he has brought the Ark of the Covenant up to dwell in a tent in the city of Jerusalem and the nation, the tribes are unified voluntarily under his leadership. And then we come to verse one of chapter seven. Now, when the king, referring to David, lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, this is, should speak to us of a Sabbath, a Sabbath day rest. God created the world. A Sabbath day rest is based on God's creative power in, in the book of Genesis. God worked for six days, he created the world in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. In some ways, the writer of the book of Second Samuel wants us to hearken back to this idea that this is God's original intent for man, is that man man should be in a perpetual and eternal state of rest. And yet, because of the fall, that plan was uh, disrupted, and now, The writer of the book of 2 Samuel wants to see that in some ways God is restoring this idyllic setting that was man's inheritance in the Garden of Eden so many years before. The king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar. Cedar was uh, very expensive in that day, a wood that was imported from Lebanon. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, "Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you." Uh, Robert Alter says the trans- this transitional note establishes a link with the previous episode in which David brought the ark into Jerusalem and had his final confrontation with Michal, which in a sense was the final blow to the house of Saul. You might remember that. David was making a fool out of himself in a linen ephod, dressed as a priest, dancing before the ark. Every 30 paces, there was a party. Michal, uh, David's first wife, was looking at him out of a window, and she was embarrassed by his antics because he was exposing himself in his short little skirt to all of uh, the maid maidservants. She said, that's no way for royalty to act. Uh, David said, there's no telling what will happen when I get in the presence of God. And I might make myself even more vile, and it spelled the end to... Uh, Saul's influence in the life of David. The house of Saul is now a footnote in Israel's history. And God has delivered the kingdom into David's hands. He has a house built of cedar given to him by built and given to him by the king of Tyre, residing, resting comfortably in Jerusalem. And his heart is restless and he speaks to Nathan the Prophet. This is the first appearance of Nathan the Prophet in the life of David. Of course, he will play a critical role in David's life on through to the day that he dies. And he says to Nathan, I it's not right that I live in a better house than God does. Alter goes on to say, what follows is a major caesera, which he defines for us as a pause. So when you get to the seventh chapter of the book of 2 Samuel, this is an idyllic moment. It is a a long pause as Alter. Not only is it a long pause in David's life, but it's a long pause in a narrative. Metaphorically speaking, it it is as though God is saying, Let's take some time out, just me and you time. And we have in the seventh chapter with the establishment of the Davidic covenant, then a conversation, not just between David and Nathan, but a conversation that takes place between God and David. In fact, if you look further down in the chapter, we didn't read it this morning, but in verse 18, it's a wonderful verse of scripture. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And David spends quality time in the presence of the Lord as the Davidic covenant is established. So what follows is a major pause in the David story, a long pause marked by ideological reflections on the future before David must deal once again with external enemies and then be engulfed by internecine strife in his court. So his problems aren't just going to be magically solved, dissolved before his eyes, disappear. He still has problems. There are problems yet to come. He still has sin in his own life in which he has to deal with. We'll see this as we move on further in the book of 2 Samuel. But right now, Uh, This is not a Coca-Cola pause that refreshes, but it is a pause that refreshes. Now, for the last uh, many months, maybe several years in this church, I have been uh, trying to establish and develop in you, as a discipline, this pause that refreshes. You've heard me speak over and over again about how life will chew you up and spit you out the world will chew you up, spit you out, and keep on going. There will be no grieving. There will be no black drapery hung. There will be no eulogy, no obituary, just trampled on. Um, uh, Even the people to whom you are closest will eventually die, and with them, your memory will die. How many of you have any memories of your great-grandparents? How many of you have memories of your great-great-grandparents? How many of you even know who your great-great-grandparents were? Uh, Thus, the story of human existence. It is a temporal existence. It is an existence that is confined by time and space. It has a beginning And it has an ending. Our culture uh, doesn't view life that way. If they view life that way, well, it's kind of the common phrase, you know, um, live the way you want to live and die young, have a good-looking corpse, you know, uh, sing a duet with Sammy Davis Jr., I Did It My Way. Um all, all of the prevailing attitudes of the culture, we could uh I'm sure if I was a connoisseur of rap music, we could go into um that and and you can see that there is a, a nihilistic uh bend to our culture right now. Like really the life is a joke anyways. Uh, I watched an interesting documentary about Janice Joplin. And in the documentary on uh, PBS, Dick Cavett, apparently she was on his show several times, and apparently there was some kind of romance, although he won't admit it, that developed there. But he he related the uh, fact that he went out to eat with Janis Joplin one night, and he said to her, Janis, you have to assure me that you're not hooked on heroin. And she was at that time, and she looked at him, this was his recounting of it, she looked at him and said, who would care if I was? Who would care if I was? In other words, we're here for a while. Uh, some people, like my Aunt Marguerite in Maine, live till they're 96. Others, they're like, uh, as Job said, the sparks that fly upwards, they're here for just a brief period of time and and the cynicism of Pilate, what is truth anyway <laughs> you you want to talk about truth, uh, you stand in my sandals for a week and try to govern this rabble rousing crowd and deal with the expectations of Rome and that kind of cynical nihilism can find its way seeping into the church. it seeps into us when we get cynical about church a, as to why should I come? Last week, um, I said to Christy, "I think I, I think we had seven people who uh, heard the sermon." And she corrected me. No, she said we had a total of twenty-one. That was women, children, and otherwise total last week. And I said, uh, "I said I don't think that it's too much to ask the members of Covenant Community Church to be uh, in church once a week." I st- I still don't think that. But that kind of skepticism about where our culture is headed, where we as a people are progressing, uh, quote unquote, uh, has a way of, of affecting us. Has a way of affecting our, our, the way we conduct our lives daily. I, uh, I was coming back from Andrew and Carey's House the other day on that awful, what is that, howder shell? Coming back that way. Christy won't even drive that way. She goes all the way down. McDonald gets on 270, which probably time-wise is just as fast, but I don't. But coming back, there was a guy who was continually cutting me off in his truck because I was in the lane that he wanted to be in, but he didn't want to be behind my truck. And so I'm in this lane, he gets all the way over to the right lane to get in this next lane, turns his truck, rocks traffic in two lanes, people can't turn right, people can't go ahead, and then he wants to get in front of me because he wants to turn left at the next light. I heard myself saying things that I should not have been saying. And I was enunciating them in my lips so that when he looked in his rear view mirror, he could see exactly what I was saying. I know none of you ever do that. I was like, blah, 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 blah. And that's the reason why blah, 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 blah. I wish that I could tell you that I felt better after that, but I didn't. It was what what is it about the culture that has so affected my relationship with Jesus that I could violate it in, in such um not not an oblique way, but just absolutely violate. It? And if you'd been sitting me with me in the truck then, uh even Rick, Rick has uh, re- riding with me in the truck, he'll reach over to blow the horn while I'm driving. And my horn doesn't work in the truck, and that really makes him frustrated. And thank God the horn doesn't work, because the way I felt about that guy, have you ever felt like just running into somebody? You know, just say, I don't care if it does cost me money that I would like to knock that person off the road. So we often find ourselves not doing what we know we should be doing, right? The, the, the person that, that knows to do right and doesn't do it, to him it is what? What? So the, the culture has a way, even though ostensibly we stand up and say, oh, God help this country. This country is in awful shape. Vote for Trump. Don't buy things at Target. Oh, this country is awful. And yet, really, in our heart of hearts, we know the way that we conduct our lives when nobody's looking, you know, when we're not posting on Facebook. Glory to God, spiritual things. So it's easy for us to point our fingers at others and say, well, that's the problem. They're the problem. All the while ignoring these desperate signs of death and rottenness in our own lives. Now if if you're worried about nickels and noses coming to church and you got bills to pay and and you've got a reputation to maintain and a and an and a, an impression to uphold with people then you're seeking out whatever works for you in the popular culture. So um uh, you know it's a wonderful thing to give away cars to a single mothers. But it, it is Is it such a wonderful thing to do that you would just do that without any fanfare? Well, (laughs) I suppose. I suppose maybe that's what Jesus would do, right? That's what Elvis did. That's what Prince did, supposedly, just write out a check and You know, Jesus himself says, well, if you give your alms in in public, you've already received your reward. Well, you're you're not doing anything better than what the Gentiles do. That's the way it works in the world. Do something magnanimous and everybody will stand stand up and clap and say, oh, look at that. But would you give the cars away if just nobody was clapping? If nobody showed up. Then we begin to see uh, what what is the spiritual disease that eats away at the very uh, fabric of our souls. So I've been militating then, you have to step away from the culture. You have to step away from people's expectations. And stepping away involves not just putting off something, it, it, it involves acquiring a new habit. So we worked, we're taught, we'll we're we're continue to talk about that. If If the last thing that I accomplish in my life would be to get a gr- core group of people daily devoted to reading the scripture text for the rest of their life, I would feel like I had accomplished something. Listen to Arthur Pink. He said, how often has, quote unquote, success been the ruination of those who have experienced it? How often has worldly advancement been followed by the deterioration of spirituality? It is good to see that such was far from being the case with David. David is has the right to relax now. It It's his. And yet his heart is pushing him. He's still thinking Godward. I want to build a house for God. It's not right that I should live in a house that is better than God's. Pink says so far from indulging in the ease and self-luxuriation, it was now that his best achievements were accomplished. First, as we've recounted, he captured the stronghold of Zion. Next, he vanquished the Philistines. Then he provided a resting place for the Holy Ark. And now he evidenced his deep concern to build a temple for the worship of Jehovah. I like this phrase by Robert Barron, to pay theological attention. You know, most of us are running our Christian lives without paying theological attention. We pay, we give our attention to those things that, Most interest us. How many know that when you bounce a check, your balance in your checking account interests you? So it does the bank too, by the way, because they love it. They say, oh, that gives us reason to charge them 35 bucks. Billions of dollars are collected by the airline industry every year If you have to check your bag, that interests me because I don't want to pay that 25 bucks each way. So when I, when we're buying, trying to buy a ticket to go out east and Christy and Lisa are, are conspiring in the office to get the best deal. And Lisa says, here, if you apply for this credit card, you get $100 off plus your baggage check is free. And, and I said, well, Go ahead and try it. And so she puts in all this and I said, Well, I only make, you know, let's put how much do you make? Thirty thousand. Lisa goes, like, no, you gotta put at least fifty thousand down. So she puts fifty thousand down. I'm like I'm like I guess my defense is I didn't do it. And then she like a few clicks later, it's like, Oh, you got it. And, and so the bill comes now, and the bill is not a hundred dollars off. And I still had to pay for my luggage to be checked each way. That's 50 bucks. How many know that interests me? I am, uh, and Christy is really, she is, she is the queen of this as far as getting on the phone. I have never heard anyone do it with the degree of excellence that she does. She she will just she will spend hours on the phone to get 5 bucks back. That is the person who's handling the money in this church. Yes. Yeah. That's right. If 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 she gives you a check or some money, she wants a receipt. It 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 interests us. But when it comes to theology, right? The the study of God, something that is going not not only to improve our state in this life, but is going to be with us forever, we seem to be disinterested. When was the last time, like King David, you just said to God, you know, God, you've done so much for me, I just want to be with you for a while. That's what the Daily Office does. See, it it points your life that may be headed distractedly down another road. It points your life in a Godward direction. Now the Bible explains to us that in in the mind of God um, there was a reason. As the story unfolds, David shares with Nathan, you know, I want to build God a house. And then that night later on, interesting night scene in the Bible, um, God speaks to Nathan and he says, look, you're going to have to tell him. The the story's going to have to be revised a little bit. As admirable as it is what he wants to do for me, I'm, I'm not going to be able to let him to do it. If you look in your Bible just quickly with me, and I don't mean to hold you much longer this morning, I'll make the point and be done with it, and hopefully the Holy Spirit will make the application. But when we look over in the book of First Chronicles, which has a parallel account, which we haven't referenced much, we've stuck pretty much to the books of First and Second Samuel for the life of David. But when we come to the twenty-second chapter of the book of First Chronicle, this is when. Solomon, David's son, what happens is David ends up collecting the material so that the temple can be built. And Solomon, his son, is the one who actually does the construction. And in the 22nd chapter of the book of 1 Chronicles, David calls in verse 6 for Solomon, his son, charged them to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. Look at verse 7. David said to Solomon, my son... I had it in my heart to build, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But, now this is information we don't have in the seventh chapter of the book of 2 Samuel, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, you, meaning David, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars you shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. So all those people that want to say that God, of the uh, God of the Old Testament is a bloodthirsty God. He's killing people left and right. Here, here's a passage that kind of militates against that idea. David, I hear your heart. I hear your heart's cry. You want to build me a house, but really what you've been involved in, uh, I, I can't allow that to happen. If you look over in uh, back a few chapters to 1 Kings, there's another reference to this. 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings chapter 8. My bad sight. 1 Kings chapter 8. Verse 17. I chose David to be over my people Israel end of 16. Now it was in the heart of David. There it is. There's that characteristic phrase again. It was in the heart of David, my father. This is Solomon speaking. To build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to, my, to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now there are heavy, um, there's a heavy me- metaphor there uh, that Jesus, the coming son of David, could be actually the one that Solomon is speaking of. We know in this instant that Solomon is speaking of himself. But when we go back and read it again in light of what happens in the New Testament, we see a greater fulfillment in in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to Robert Barron. Though God certainly sanctioned the rise of David, it appears as though God was not entirely pleased with all or even any of David's wars. At the very least, he did not want a shedder of blood to be the builder of the place where divinity and humanity were to be liturgically reconciled. Now, here it is. Here you know, we come to the lesson to take home today. David had a desire; it was a good desire, and God says no. He, God has the right to say no to us, even when our desires are good. God has the right to disappoint us, even when we are being thoroughly spiritual. Now, that that doesn't fit with my view of God. I, I like God. <laughs> I acknowledge God. But as far as God messing with my life and what I want to do with my life, I don't like that that much. What if, what if God says, what well, you say, Well, God, I'd like to do this for you. And God says, no, I don't want you to do that. Wow. Just go take a hike, God. I mean, you don't have that many friends to begin with. Remember, St. Teresa of Avila, she falls off a horse into a mud mud puddle and she hears God speak to her. That's how I treat all my friends. And she speaks back to God and says, well, it's no wonder that you have so few now, I don't really know if that happened. I don't really know if God spoke to her and, and said all of that. But there, there's, there's, there's a strain of truth in that, that there are, there are times when God shows up and he, and he looks like he doesn't even know us. Like he doesn't even acknowledge us. Like he's off on a trip doing what he wants to do and we're not really going to have a part to, to do with uh, anything with that and we got to be happy about it. It's a good thing, David. It's in your heart to build me a house. Guess what? The answer is no. Listen to Baron again. There are times when a person might set out on a course that is obviously at cross purposes with God's providential plan, but there are other times when a person resolves to act not in a selfish manner, but according to an honest discernment of God's will. And often it is the people in the second category who find the divine opposition most unnerving. What would be wrong with us as a church saying we want, we want more people to be involved in covenant community church. We would all say, well, that's a lofty goal, right? What is the future of covenant community church? Well, we, the Abraham Project says, uh, we got to keep trekking. We got to keep moving. God's going to open up the door. God's going to show us where to go, what to do. And we all have expectations. Uh, I've told people, they said, well, what do you, they asked me over and over again, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? I said, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know where we're going to go. And they look at me like, that's not right. You're the pastor." You should know what you're going to do and, and where you're going to go. I say, well, we could stay here. We could keep the doors open. We could survive in this place. I said, but I would like to get Covenant Community Church in a different footprint so that there could at least be an opportunity to thrive. That sounds reasonable to me. What if God says, no, no? Lofty goal, lofty ambition, wonderful plan, but the answer's no. Wow. Yeah. Okay, well, let me recalculate. Let me recalibrate my life. Or maybe, you know what, just forget it, God. You don't need a house. You don't... Heaven is your throne, earth is your footstool. You don't dwell in houses made by men's hands anyways, so let's just uh, have church on the web on Sunday mornings. Yeah, you can get cynical and you can get skeptical about things, particularly when God says no to a good cause that you have championed. What do we do with that? Listen to Baron again, that last line. Often it is the people in the second category who find the divine opposition most unnerving. He says a person's plan might be bold, might be beautiful, might be magnanimous and popular, but still not God's plan. A person's ambition might be admirable and selfless, but still not be congruent with God's ambition. The fact that David was compelled to surrender his plan to the greater purposes of Yahweh is still another illustration of the biblical principle. Here's a lesson for the day that our lives are not about us. I love this quote from Joseph Campbell, which Robert Barron uh, uses. He's talking about people who've been given the wrong advice. Wrong advice like, well, go into this line of work because you can make lots of money and joseph campbell responds and they are the ones who have climbed to the top of the ladder and found it's leaning against the wrong wall could you imagine that i've climbed the ladder i've made it to the top I'm, i'm higher than everybody and then all of a sudden you realize wrong building wrong block wrong job wrong vocation wrong purpose Nation spirituality, on the other hand, I love this phrase, develops the cultivation of a, de- of a detachment from our own program of life in order to allow God to work effortlessly in us. What, what if God just said, you know what, from now on till the day you die, I'm just going to be disappointing you all the time. Wow. <laughs> you know what, I'm going to David Craig's church. David Craig, he's doing, you know, there are no good churches in North County. So guess what? I'm going to drive 20 minutes. I'm going to drive 40 minutes to David Craig's church because he's the the only church that's doing anything in St. Louis. What if God, you know, (laughs) I don't mind sacrificing every so often, but to be a living sacrifice, Means that I have to be assaulted by daily disappointment. Therefore, brethren, this is, this is, you're supposed to present yourselves a living sacrifice, which the best translation says is your reasonable act of service or worship. Crawl up on the altar and suffer excruciating pain. Not the liberty and freedom that you want because you're tied to the four horns of the altar. And guess what? You'll never die. You'll just bleed out to the end of your life. Oh, sign me up for that. That's the kind of Christianity I want. And then we see how devoted we really are to our own uh, self-survival. It's easy for us to read scriptures about pick up your cross and follow me, deny yourself. It, it's easy for us to, to read scriptures about, you know, if you find your life, you'll lose it. And if you lose your life, you'll find, what if God shows up in your life really one day and he says, you know what? Your life's just going to be a mess from now on. Well, that, surely God, this can't be your will for my life, is it? Didn't you come to give me life more abundantly? I love the phrase "decentering of the ego." Decentering of the ego. It is exactly what Paul speaks of in the book of Galatians. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. you you want to make that great exchange, it's not. It's not an easy road. You say, I'm going to give up on living the life that I want. I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to let Christ occupy that space within me. That's what Christianity is. And a Christianity like that is sore needed in our nation and in our culture. And God's call to us is, will we persist in being, be, being that church? Will we answer God's call to be that church wherever he places us? I don't know what the future holds. For this church. I'll tell you this it worries me that, that people who ostensibly pledged allegiance to the cross of Christ are occupied with other things. I won't be happy with the church of one, just me. I don't think that's the way that God intended it to be. I think there is a universal church. We should have good relations and uh, neighborly relations with other churches who may not believe the same way that we do. But brothers and sisters, can we not see the handwriting on the wall for our culture? And yet we still flirt with that. We still persist in some kind of infatuation with that. It's, it's the way that leads to death. When I, when I say that we should get up in a morning and open our Bible and read a passage of scripture, it is, it is so that there is a discipline instilled within us that no matter what happens in our culture, no, if America doesn't become quote unquote great again, if we go to Target and there's 16 different bathrooms for 16 different expressions of sexuality, that there would be something instilled, built down deep within you that cannot be moved, that cannot be disturbed, that will give you rest in the storm. Wind's going to blow, the rain's going to fall. Jesus himself ended the, his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Great was the fall of that house. The other house that built was built on the rock, it did not fall. But I do believe it sustained some damage. It's not an easy thing to be a conscientious, disciplined follower of Jesus Christ in the age in which we live. But that's the that's the path that Christ has called us to. That's the church that God has called me to pastor. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will make that real and evident to you. Amen.
0: For more information on Covenant Community Church, visit us online at www.covcomchu.org. That's covcomchu.org. Or give us a call at 314 869-4367 At Covenant Community Church, it's our prayer that the preceding message has served to glorify Christ and further God's work in your life.